the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, a uh, fascinating piece in The New Yorker, I Want to Meet My Teacher. A protest is described in the small suburb of Maplewood, New Jersey, about 25,000 people. One of the organizers is a woman named Julie Fry, uh, and she announces the crowd as described in this piece. We have extra masks and hand sanitizer and so on and so forth. A woman next to her is uh, wearing a L.L. Bean windbreaker and a mask that read WWRBGD, like what would Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? Julie Fry, the organizer of this protest against school closure, public defender, describes her political views as left radical. She was involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement back when she lived in Brooklyn before she followed the migratory pattern that has brought so many other progressive young parents to Maplewood, New Jersey, a town that prides itself on its racial diversity and spirit of social activism. But uh, she came to a position that put her at odds with uh, many of her neighbors, particularly those that were part of the school system. She wanted her first grader to go to school. At a December protest, children stood next to their parents, held signs that read, I want to meet my teacher and don't mute me. A little girl gripped a pendant on a stick, uh, observed the author. I want real school. One masked mom after another came forward citing studies that suggest children are relatively less vulnerable to the virus and the recommendations of public health experts who say reopening schools should be an overarching priority. Hmm. Uh, who says there can't be unity across ideological uh, spectrum? It has less to do with ideology and I guess more to do perhaps with who you're beholden to, as we're seeing from President Biden. If you're beholden to the teachers unions that don't want to go back to school, don't want to go back to teaching, then um, you're on one side of the Maginot line. And if you're somebody who's following the research, considering what is in the best interest of the children, then you're on the other side of that line. And it's very interesting as parents are being pitted against their kids, teachers and school administrators, how this may reshape the way we do K through 12 education in America. Maybe it at least generates a conversation for some considerations. For more on this discussion, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so it's uh, fascinating, you know, the the uh, teachers unions and, and the politicians that uh, march to the beat of their drum. They always want to make uh, things like a competition in K through 12 education an ideological thing or a partisan thing. And as we're seeing, perhaps most uh, in in the most pronounced fashion we've seen in the last 30 years, when it comes to kids education, you can get some very strange political bedfellows. This is about how we do education, not about who you voted for as president of the United States, per se. And uh, Boy, this little uh, story that was told in The New Yorker, a left-wing outlet, about a left-wing community in New Jersey really drives that point home to me. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole uh, thing with COVID and the school shutdowns really just illustrates how important it is that families have multiple options. Some families are uh, very nervous about COVID and their kids getting it or their kids bringing it home and possibly infecting somebody in the home. Uh, 
Uh, and so they want virtual education or they want to be in small clusters of children like uh, these uh, so-called pandemic pods. Others want their kids back in full-time instruction in person uh, with their classmates uh, to the extent possible. But not everybody is going to have their wishes met in uh, a top-down system where you are assigned to a school based on the location of your home. We would be doing much better in this pandemic if the money were to follow the child into the learning environment that the parents believe best meet their individual needs and also meet their needs in this time of crisis. And it's been interesting to see the reaction from the institutional interests that want a status quo and then and the status quo in terms of the power relationship, who's really in control of the K through 12 schools, the government school systems. The NEA in a recent uh, policy paper essentially uses language like radicals and unqualified to talk about parents who develop these sort of pods like you're, you mentioned uh, putting together families and maybe somebody, different parents with uh, expertise taking different subjects or bringing in a teacher to teach the their little pod. They, they're really uh, attempting to vilify parents who take their kids out of the public school system, a public school system that, that they want to remain closed in spite of the evidence worldwide, trying to uh, treat them like they treat politicians who disagree with them. So you're suggesting they're promoting separate but equal, they're creating racial divisions, they're leaving uh, students of color behind, and uh, also they're radicals and they're unqualified to teach even their own children. I mean, really, if there's any system that has done more to leave students of color behind than the public school system that we have today, I can't think of one. Over and over, uh, research on school choice programs like vouchers, tax credits, scholarships, and education savings accounts find uh, not only that the students who are participating in the programs have statistically significant learning gains, but that the greatest learning gains are among those who are mo the most disadvantaged, uh, including students of color. It's the families uh, that are the most choice deprived that have the most to gain from expansion of educational choice. Uh, we do a monthly uh, tracker of uh, public opinion at EdChoice. Uh, our most recent data show that 76% of parents of school-aged children say that they would be in favor of an education savings account that they could use for things like private school tuition, tutoring, and, and more, uh, and, and would allow any money that they saved to roll over into the next year uh, for future expenses. And, and we've seen the data, too. I mean, it's in terms of the percentage of private schools versus public schools that have had some in-person learning. I mean, it's a very small percentage initially of, of public schools, something like 5 percent versus 60 percent of private schools. And that disparity just in terms of it just speaks to the, the, the difference in the approach to education and, and where the focus is. Uh, it seems school systems that are dominated by teachers unions are adult focused and school systems that um, – are not teachers union dominated, are more child focused, uh, family focused for the, the families that send their kids to that school. And, and I thought that was sort of the point. It, it just seems to me an untenable position for the teachers unions to continue to suggest that uh, people who are poorer can't afford the same options as people who have a little bit more money shouldn't have the same choices. I mean, uh, I, I just don't understand how that is persuasive at all. Yeah, and, and you know, frankly, it's a matter of incentives. I hear over and over, oh, the, the public schools are accountable uh, and the private schools are not accountable. But it's actually, it's really the reverse. The private schools uh, and charter schools, which are a form of public schools, but that are privately managed, those schools are directly accountable to the parents. And those parents, if they are not satisfied, they have the ability to leave and take their money with them. The public schools are not directly accountable to families. 
Uh, they're sort of like a, you know, a public monopoly, uh, especially in areas where you've got a lower income population that, that can't afford to move somewhere that has a better school system or to you know, pay private school tuition. So you essentially have a captive audience. Uh, and in those cases, those schools, uh, they are accountable to uh, elected politicians and unelected bureaucrats. Um, but that's a poor substitute for direct accountability to parents. And we're seeing that play out right now. Parents who want their schools open, well, that's why, they're, that's why most private schools are open, because the parents say, we want it, we're paying you, and then the school system, uh, you know, the private school finds a way to make that happen. These other school systems that are not directly accountable to the parents don't really have to listen to what the parents want, and they are captured, as you said, by other special interests. And, and so as we're on the cusp of uh, the annual school choice week in, in this country, where should uh, proponents of school choice and the various programs that are up and running in uh, states and localities around the nation, where should they be focusing their advocacy in, in, at this time in terms of uh, you know, getting this message that you just provided out to more and more families around the country? I mean, the, the, the key drivers are the state legislatures. Uh, so you should be taking a look. You can go to uh, edchoice.org uh, every single month. Uh, we have a uh, post that we put up uh, talking about all the different bills that are moving through state legislatures all across the country. Uh, right now, we're tracking bills uh, in more than two dozen states. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, I've been in this movement for uh, more than a decade and a half. Uh, I have never seen so many bills that have uh, a really good chance of passing. And it's not just the quantity, it's also the quality uh, state legislators are going bigger and bolder. Uh, we're seeing more education savings account programs, which unlike traditional vouchers that pay for tuition, as I mentioned earlier, the ESAs can be used for a wide variety of educational expenses, empowering families with more freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education. Uh, and they're going bigger instead of, you know, these small limited programs that are, you know, only for students with special needs, which is a very important population to serve. Uh, or only for lower income families or a pilot program for you know, 2,000 kids. We're seeing states that are reaching for you know, universal programs that would empower every single family to have these options. Uh, so absolutely check out the edchoice.org website uh, and make sure that you, you know, call, your social, call your state legislator or reach out to them via social media and let them know that you support educational choice. Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, edchoice.org, as you heard him uh, say. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.